Hey, this is Karen Williams, Cyber Manager for JRC in Huntsville, Alabama. And if you want to know what's happening in information security, you should be listening to the InfoSec Sync podcast with my good friend, Nick Thomas. If you're looking for insight into the vast world of information security, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the InfoSec Sync podcast, the only top-rated information security podcast committed to helping you enhance your cyber skill set. Listen in on conversations with world-class information security thought leaders, subject matter experts, authors, and more as we exchange ideas, best practices, and discuss the latest trends, threats, strategies, and solutions for your success. So get ready to get in sync with your host, Nick Thomas. Hello. And welcome to another episode of the InfoSecSync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Nick Thomas, and today is a very special episode. This is the first episode in my new series, Women in Cyber, where I will be speaking with female cybersecurity leaders and gaining insight into their careers, success, leadership style, and much more. My guest for this inaugural episode today is Karen Williams. Karen is a cybersecurity manager in the Strategic Defense and International Operations Division of JRC Integrated Systems. She has 16 years of experience with providing information system management and cybersecurity engineering expertise for the Department of Defense. Specifically, in system software lifecycle development, requirements analysis, certification and accreditation of information systems, disaster recovery, business contingency planning, risk management, security engineering, testing and cyber assessments, supply chain risk management, and cyber acquisition support. Karen is a She Leads Tech Liaison for the Huntsville ISACA Chapter Board of Directors. She's also a part-time instructor at UAH College of Continuing Education teaching the CISSP. She's a creator, facilitator of a meetup called Cyber Brews, which is mind-melding for cyber professionals. Karen has a bachelor's degree in communication arts, psychology, and a master's of science degree in information systems from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And last but not least, Karen holds the ISC Squared CISSP certification. And without any further ado, here's the interview. Karen, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. So I've I've read your bio to the audience, and it's very extensive. Um, one of the first things I want to talk about is uh, where you are in your current career and your current company. What are you doing at JRC? Tell us a little bit about the company and what you do there. Sure. Uh, well, JRC is a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. Uh, it is based out of Washington, D.C. We have, uh, I think, around... 12 states that we're located in currently. Huntsville is one of the uh, locations, Huntsville, Alabama, that's where I work. I am the cyber manager um, of our division, and I do cyber engineering for tactical weapon systems currently. Uh, that's my primary role, but I'm also the manager, so I do business development, networking, proposal writing, so kind of uh, the whole gamut, and then, of course, take care of the of mentoring and training our cyber personnel, so that's pretty much what I do there. 
That is a handful of things that you just said. So let's break a couple of them down. Um, specifically, do you work on um, commercial work? Do you work in government? Can you say what you do? Well, I can. Uh, we work government. We're a government contractor, and I work for an agency within the Department of Defense. I'll, I believe I can say that. That's fine. That's <laughs> that's okay to say. So yes, uh, but it's. Uh, Primarily systems engineering is what our focus is. Uh, we have been building cyber and kind of digging deeper into what we do. We do have um, some folks in Florida that focus on cyber training. Um, so we're growing our capabilities all the time. We currently do anywhere from computer network defense, cyber management, risk management framework, and systems system security engineering on the cyber side. Excellent, excellent. Um, tell me a little bit more about, um, you had mentioned the risk management framework. Um, some of our listeners may not know what that is. Can you uh, just give us a little thread on that? Sure. Uh, so risk management framework is the NIST guidance, the National Institute of Standards and Technology guidance on um, how we should implement basically our cybersecurity. Uh, though the methodology is not really compliance based, it's risk management based. So we take a look at vulnerabilities or security controls that we may not, we will have in our base line but maybe non-compliant and we can take those non-compliant controls and we run them through risk processes risk analysis risk boards and then we tell the agency what how that affects the agencies we give them data and then they have to make a risk-based decision is it within their risk appetite of the agency do they want to move forward with that but it's all about basically taking these baselines of cybersecurity controls that need to go into your product and then determining what you have left over that is not compliant and, and find what's the risk, ask the, the big question. And then finding risk is a big drill down procedure in and of itself. Is there, um, or how many steps are there um, in the risk management framework? And specifically, what expertise do you bring to your current customer? So there are, so, so Rev 2, so NIST 837, and um, I will sit here and, and rattle off uh, NIST guidelines. And so um, if, if you don't know them, uh, I can certainly get to nick a copy of them. All the NIST things I'm going to talk about today are that I'll weave into the conversation because that's part of cyber engineering is knowing where to go find it, right? Heck, so absolutely. NIST NIST Special Publication 837 is the implementation of RMF, and they came out with Rev2, I think, at the end of 2019. Rev2 has technically seven steps, but they still call it six steps because um, you have now a prepare step. And I believe what they're the way that they're looking at the prepare step is kind of ground zero. So that's in the center. And in the prepare step, it will prepare you for all the six steps of RMF. So there's categorize. Um, you categorize the system, then you select the security controls based on your categorization. Then you implement, that's where engineering comes in, is where they'll actually engineering comes in in the categorization and the implement, uh, the selecting of cybersecurity controls. And then you have implementation, then you have to have it assessed. So it will be assessed by independent assessors. And then once it's assessed for risk, that goes to an authorizing official in the next step, which is authorized. 
and the uh, authorizing official will say, yes, you can uh, operate for this amount of time at this risk posture and I'll give you six months, go burn down some more of these and come back to me and maybe I'll give you a year and, and you keep extending it out the further, the more controls that you burn down off of your risk profile. Then that's part of continuous monitoring, which is supposed to be the last step, but it really never ends. Continuous monitoring never ends and it just kind of flows back into it. You don't necessarily recategorize your system unless something drastic changes or maybe you added uh, data in there that you've got to recalculate your categorization. But you will certainly go back and look at your baselines and tailor it often that 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 never stops either. And then the the uh, implementing controls goes into the engineering B, right? So you're you when you're on an engineered weapon system, it may be a little different if you're talking about enterprise systems where you may be running a sandbox. And so it's quicker to get things out into the field, into your enterprise. My, uh, my experience is uh, really grounded in the engineering products, engineered products. So uh, the way I, my brain thinks about it is everything has to go back through the engineering bee and that even in uh, risk management framework. So like, for instance, people will come to me and say, well, I, I just don't know how to get my customer or the system owner to do these requirements. And, I, and I'll have to ask them, well, which, what do you mean by requirements? Well, that, that RMF baseline. And so I have to kind of bridge the gap there and say, okay, when you're talking about an engineered product, engineers don't consider it a requirement unless it's been verified through like, and, and been adjudicated through a process and then it has to go through an SRR and, and I can't remember what that milestone is right now, but it'll go through an SRR milestone in the engineering process to become a valid a valid requirement. So um, it's sometimes kind of bridging the gap is what I do a lot of times. I understand engineering. I understand the milestones. I understand how you derive requirements, how you get them into the system, but then I also have to like bridge the gap to maybe folks who are doing auditing or governance that may not understand that just because you have a baseline set of controls doesn't automatically make them a requirement. Absolutely. Yeah, stakeholders have to buy off on that to decide whether or not they want to accept all those controls. And they may want to add controls in there, but it's a little different. And so I always always throw that in there when I'm teaching RMF and, and whatnot. I have a little engineering flavor there. So, Karen, it sounds like you meet with a lot of people to get these things taken care of for your customer, um, bridging the gap. I um, want to ask, how did you get into this field? So uh, maybe a, a happy accident, really. Um, so when I was a kid, when I was really a kid, um, my dad, so my dad did two things. He worked, well, several things. We were, we were, we grew up farmers. So it came from like a, a farming uh, background. And uh, my father worked for the post office during his day job. And then he also was a shade tree mechanic. He was very mechanically inclined. He could fix anything. But then as um, technology grew into vehicles, he stopped working on them because um, he was older when he had me. So by the time that technology starts to change in cars and they become more computerized and then even at his job. So when he was at the post office, he did a lot of manual stuff and he would talk to me about all this manual sorting that he would do and, and he would remember zip codes and all this. But when they put a computer in front of him to start automating some processes, he felt really um, intimidated by that. By that time, he was getting ready to retire. But I, I was in high school at that time, and he would say, you're really smart in math. 
you should go into computers. Now, I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to go into computers or not, but I was certainly intrigued by them. I think somebody uh, that I was babysitting for that worked in Huntsville as an engineer gave me um, a computer he didn't want anymore. It was a Mac. Uh, um, and all I remember it was like, it looked like a little box with a, with a monitor on it. And um we got doll up. We, we, I was in high school when we got doll up. And so I, I was just plugging things in, you know, I'm, I don't know much about it, but I'm going to figure it out because it, it was so neat to me to be like, Oh wow. I don't have to use this manual typewriter anymore and put the little stuff in it. I can use a word processor and look what I can get done and look how quick it was. Um, for me, automating and organizing and grouping things to be more efficient was something that innately was like, Oh, I love, I love this. So I was kind of learning who I was, my personality, what I liked, and then it just kind of fell into understanding technology was something that I, I never, I was, I was, I don't know, I was interested in it. So I went to um, junior college and I got my maths out of the way and I started taking some computer science classes where I started coding. Um, and in one of my classes, I ended up like uh, using basic programming language to uh, create what would be on a monitor for an ATM machine. We went through the whole process, you know, like the, you know, how much do you want to take out? Are you doing a withdrawal? Do you want a receipt? You know, we we did the interface for that. And I thought that was so cool, you know, to be able to code. And uh, I took some more coding classes and I decided I was in junior college working full time and I decided I want to go to Auburn. I've always wanted to go to Auburn. War Eagle, and um, and I thought I'll I'll just do it. Now I've always I grew up in a very rural town and very small high school, but I thought if you know I think I can do it. I think I have the courage. So I got accepted. It wasn't a problem getting accepted, but I got down there and I was in engineering. I I, I enrolled in engineering, and they put Fortran and calculus two and with differentials um, and uh, chemistry all in the same semester. And I was a brand new student at a large university and there was football season. So I didn't do so well. Like the only <laughs> only class I passed was like a lab um, and I had never failed in anything in my life. And so I was defeated and, and I was <laughs> I was scared. I was like, no, I'm not doing engineering anymore. I'm not doing it. I'm leaving. <laughs> I came back and I got into liberal arts and found communications. And then I found another passion of, of mine and um, because I, I love to write. So. I kind of put technology on a hold for a little while, went into liberal arts to my dad's little disappointment, right? Because, you know, he was expecting me to come out an engineer. And um, I ended up coming home after a year. I made Dean's List before I left Auburn. I made Dean's List, list and came back home and, and, and came to the University of Alabama in Huntsville. So um, I ended up graduating from UAH uh, almost three different times. I got my my bachelor's in that in communication arts. I studied some uh, technical editing and technical writing. What I loved about those classes was we would study uh, local engineering projects and we would take those and we would have to take those and kind of rewrite them for like software manuals or for different manuals to explain how a system worked because you know engineers may not be the best writers. So how do you make it flow if you're a user and you don't have to describe this to a user? And so I kind of started doing that. I was taking some psychology classes, which ended up being very helpful uh, learning humans because uh, I was I knew that I wasn't necessarily uh, in in touch with humans as much as I was like task. I really like task, but I wasn't necessarily grown to be a nurturer. So psychology helped me with that. Um, anyway, so I, I say all that say I, I 
my first job out of college was working at the mental health center and that took about 18 months to decide I don't know that this is going to make me a living that I need and if I went and got a master's in this even though I enjoyed getting to know people and learning about different uh, human behaviors and, and things like that it was like it's not it's not gonna it's probably not gonna work out best for me and I knew my this is this is probably not great to say, but at the time I did have an inkling that my first marriage was not going to work out and I had two children. And so I was laying bets that I probably need to go back into computers, something to do. So I went to back to UAH and started back into some um, mass, um, management of information system classes and just took off. I started writing back in code and it was almost like I never left. It's like I almost just started writing code again and, and it just kind of it came to me and I was like, all right, this is where I want to be. And so I started taking more of those classes. I decided to do management because um, I love the way that you organize and group things. And I and I thought that that was more my speed than I didn't want to. I knew I didn't want to sit and code all the time, but I, I enjoyed it. So the technology kind of got me into that. <clears throat> I got into the master's program and then at work, I started uh, a job where um I was working on a where they were building a data warehouse uh, for a, a DOD customer. And um, they came to me one day and they said, you're at UAH, right? And I was like, yeah. And they said, uh, they have an IA program, an information assurance program, because this was in like 2007, 2008. And they said, they have an information assurance program there, right? And I'm like, yeah, they, are you taking that? I said, yeah, I've taken one or two classes in the certificate program, but, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on my, my master's in MIS. Um, and they're like, well, we need some sort of certificate. The Army says we need a certificate. So can you can you just get us a certificate? And they, they thought it was just like filling out a form and that was it. And so I had no idea what I was doing. It was DICAP. Um, and it was uh, it was an army customer, so it was army uh, certificate of net worthiness is what I needed, but I had no idea. So, and this kind of goes into maybe some other things we'll talk about today. But I went and found a mentor. I found a female that was working in. I mean, she was great. She was well known. She was at our company, and she was working on a different project. And I just went to her, and I was like, "Help! I don't know what I'm supposed to do." So she basically helped me lay out binders of all of the, the documentation that you needed in order to help you move along. And, and, and then I thought, okay, well, I, I think I can do this. It's, it seems not too bad, but it was a lot of documentation to read and digest. And so as I was getting the hands-on experience of being kind of thrown into this fire, I started taking more and more of the IA classes. So I was duly enrolled in grad school in like two different programs. <laughs> and they, they complimented one another, but that's how I got into it. Uh, somebody just needed something and no one knew how to do it. And um, luckily I was just at the right place at the right time. And, and it is, it's really funny because in a way, the people who gave it to me thought it was like an admin job. Uh, <laughs> here, here, this is just an admin job. You, you really, in order to get successfully get a certificate of net worthiness, to fill out all these forms, you had to know the technical information and you had to know where to go get it. Well, luckily, you know, you're working right there with the software developers or whomever is developing the system and putting it together. So you learn, well, what I learned was, okay, I can't work in a silo. 
I, I have to go like talk to all these different people and these different product teams that make up this whole system and go grab information about what are you doing with this module? What are they doing over here with in, in configuration management? What are you doing over here in, in requirements analysis? And you had to tell the story. So it all kind of worked together. I, I had hands-on learning and college at the same time. And then my career just sort of took off. Like once I figured out how to do that, I, I didn't have to I didn't really have to wait or like think about where's my next job coming from, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so Karen, you picked a very male dominated field. Um, what challenges do you face as a female in a male dominated field and how do you build your confidence to work? So I, I will say this, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. There were a lot of men who helped me and were mentors to me. So I think sometimes that, especially right now, we, we it's a touchy subject and, and we we think that all men just don't want to see women succeed. And that's just not true. That's not true at all. Like the the men that I, I had a, um, his name is Pete Franks, um, and he was a retired lieutenant colonel, but he was my program manager for this company. And he gave me the shot to be, to do more tech work. Um, at first, I was just kind of, when I first came in to this company, I was doing security management at the front door. You know, I had to check badges. I had to check doors and locks and codes. And and then he was like, you know, I know that you can do some technical work. So he gave me technical work on the side. And then he started letting me help write papers and things like that. So I had some I had some really great people that were put in in my universe to help me along. And so I want to give credit where credit is due for that. But on the flip side, yes, there were challenges. Um, there are there there are certain personality types, and I think certain certain folks who live in certain in cultural norms that are probably a generation above you and I, a generation older than us, right? That really didn't still didn't think of women as technical people in the workplace. And I'll give you some examples of things that I faced. I would go to a meeting and here I am like almost finished with my master's degree. I've been doing some technical work for like hands on two or three years and I go into meetings and there it's full of men and there may be another woman in there taking meeting minutes, taking notes and, and they would halfway through the meeting. I had somebody look at me one time and stop the meeting and say, well, that's all the admin stuff that we're going to talk about today. Karen, you can go if you don't want to stay for this boring technical stuff. Oh, and I was just like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm good. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, you, you kind of try to find some, uh, some grace in handling that, you know, and you just tell them, no, I'm, I'm good to stay and you can continue on and, and whatnot. Um, there would be times that I would go into meetings and I'm the person who's taking the information. I'm the person who is, is interviewing these people to get, this stuff filled out so that we can get our authorizations and, and things. And I would have a, maybe a male counterpart that went in with me that's a lot younger, that doesn't have a master's, that's just kind of starting out. And the men would interface with him and not really interface directly with me. So it was, it was a little different, but I say that like, I just think that that was people's comfort levels of where they were in their life. So that was a little odd for them. And then, you know, I, I've always um, kind of found it funny that, and, and in, a, in a way, being female and being very logical, because I'm very, very logical, like my the way my personality is and my brain, but I'm extroverted. So I'm, I'm, I'm smart, 
I'm logical. I think things through, but I'm extroverted. So I like to have fun. I like to meet people. I like to network. And in some cases, that kind of personality intimidated people. And not just men, but it, it intimidated different varieties of people. So I've had um, where I just didn't understand, like, why can't I be a female and just be a smart female and it be okay? But there were many times early in my career that I felt like, well, maybe maybe I should just not shine. So you so you start developing the, these bad habits of trying to sit on the wall in meetings or, you know, like, I don't want to intimidate people, so I shrink. And it took me a couple of years to stop doing that, like mm -hmm. that being myself is okay, that I don't have to bear any shame because of other people's insecurities. Other people's insecurities are theirs. That's not mine. And so I, I think women deal with that a little bit more maybe in some cases than men do. Um, or maybe women share that with one another more than men do. I don't, I don't know because sometimes that kind of vulnerable information that you share about yourself, it it. it it does uh, make you a little, I guess, vulnerable, but that's how we grow, right? If we, when we talk about those things, um, but certainly, like it, there were there were women in my path that were wonderful, that helped me grow, that helped me navigate things. Um, I found it interesting that some women that were older than me that had been working in the tech industry, um, they during and they may be like a generation older than me and when I say that about ten years or so, and they would uh, not wear makeup. They would not wear a lot of jewelry. Um, they were afraid of being stereotyped if they if they wore fingernail polish. And I just find that so weird because with I think with uh, yours and I like and even younger generations, we just let people be who they are. It seems like we're we're more apt to do that. Like let people be who they are. If you like to wear your hair a certain way, then do it. If you like a lot of jewelry, hey, go ahead. What we're looking for is can you help solve complex problems? You know, absolutely your skill set. So, yeah, so I, but definitely I, I, I think that the world is changing. I do see change. I, I think it's positive. Do we have a ways to go? Probably. We probably do. But I would just, you know, I, I talked to a friend of mine, David Galloway, uh, earlier who uh, lives in Huntsville and he works here and he and I used to work together and we were just talking about that. And then I said, you know, I just have such, I just have good, fun the fond memories and the good positive things that I have with male coworkers and, and mentors out certainly outweighs the bad. There were things that, you know, you have to, I have endured, but I think that it's getting better. And what I love to see is that men who step up and, and already like welcome women, welcome everyone. And so we're staying, I think we're seeing that. I think it's better. Um, that's just my opinion, I guess. <laughs> so some women listening or watching will probably want to know how do they find a mentor and what can you say to that? So I think you can find a mentor in many ways. Uh, my the the advice I got when I first started out in this world was join a professional organization. So um, you can join ISC squared. You can join ISACA. Um, ISACA is great and wonderful because you have such a diverse group of people. I have met the, mo the most diverse people, I think, in my career through ISACA. Um, so if you want kind of inclusion and diversity, but ISC squared is also great too. Um, as you can imagine, with uh, when, when I first started out and I got my uh, certification, my CISSP uh, from ISC squared, it was still very male dominated, right? So there was, 
because it was still male dominated, not a lot of women. And that is changing, of course. We've got more women women coming into the field, more women getting uh, their years of experience in so they can take the CISSP. So we know that that is changing. Um, I would say find, if you're in school, find someone that you're in school with, maybe a professor who's a female within the tech industry. Uh, or even a male, it doesn't, I don't, you know, I just think, say find a mentor. Do you want to be great at what you do? So I guess that's my question was be, what are your goals and what are your plans? Do you want to be great? And do you want to get your career to the next level and yourself professionally to the next level? Then choose a mentor who will help get you there. And it may not even be a mentor in cyber. Maybe you have a, a fear of public speaking, but that's something that you want to do. Go find you a professional organization like um, there's one, you know, there's different professional organizations for that. And then there may be somebody at, at, at work or something that is a great speaker. Um, maybe you want to hone in on skills like that. Um, there, the other thing is um, you can usually find social groups on Facebook and social media. Um, and if nothing else, forge your own way. So there's nothing holding you back to say that you can't set up a, like, that's what I did with Cyber Bruce. So it was just like, I kind of miss my people and I missed interacting with my people. And I, and I thought social learning was such a great way to grow and learn and, and find mentors that I just started like calling breweries and saying, uh, do you mind if a group of 10 or 15 of us meet here like next Thursday and, and will you charge us any fees or anything like that? No, come on. Okay. And then put it on social media so you can find things like that. Um, certainly with Isaka, she leads tech. So if you're if, if you're thinking about joining a professional organization and you're a woman, you can join Isaka and then you can follow the she leads uh, profile. I think it's one uh, the the main page is one in tech, and then you can follow the she leads tech, and you can see all sorts of uh, group gatherings and networking events that they have going on throughout the globe. So I think there's multiple opportunities, you know, just wherever you wherever you find those. And do you think that's a good thing um, of how uh, men and women can create a more inclusive cyber security culture for women is by um, meeting and, and doing those things? Absolutely. I, I think that that's what grows us. You know, I know that COVID over the last, you know, 12 months has really put a damper on our networking. And that's one of the things that I've missed. Um, and it's and I enjoy business development, too, because I, I love going to meet people and saying, what keeps you up at night? What are you having problems with? And do I have a capability that can get you to your solution? And that has been very difficult to do, you know, because I haven't been able to go and reach out and touch people, right? You can't, you know, you can do it virtually, but there's always a difference from being there in person with someone, you know? So, um, but I, I think that those are wonderful opportunities. Like the, you work with the cybersecurity summit. And so you, you know, that, that we, uh, which I, I think in 2006 or 2007, when the first cybersecurity summit was was held, uh, it might have been the second one in Adtran. Um, I was on that committee to support it, like as a volunteer. So I remember when it was small, like 100 to 150 people with four vendors, and then look at it today. You know, it's growing into 3,000 plus and and 45, 50 plus vendors. Um, that is a way that you draw people together and you do, number one, the networking, but the social learning and then the learning from guest speakers with different expertises. So you're bringing people from all factors of cyber. And I, I just think the more that we do that, the more that we build partnerships, um, the better that we can become globally. Oh, that, 
That's awesome. Uh, that's a really uh, good summit, the National Cyber uh, Summit there in Huntsville. Um, over your experience, um, what uh, for women that are getting into the field or that are currently in, what courses or certifications do you think are necessary to be successful in the field or to get um, better position? So, so with cyber engineering, if, you, if you're going an engineering route, definitely, you know, your education, right, is your, is your, is your best thing because those engineering credentials, and I mean, maybe I'm speaking because of the environment that I work in in Huntsville and it's a big engineering town. You're in, if you're, if you're doing, if your goal is that, make sure you have your education credentials. That is going to get you because everything is contracting. If you're in the DOD, everything's contracting. So most engineering positions, you have to have a bachelor's and it has to be in a technical field. So MIS or uh, they call some, sometimes they just call it information systems now, information systems management or cyber engineering or information system security engineering. Just that's your foundation, right? Um, and a lot of times you can find entry level jobs into that. And uh, there are companies that will work with the universities and, and whatnot and get you placed into doing either <clears throat> internships. Um, that's if you're going like the engineering route. A lot of times uh, and with the engineering certs, you have to have like a certain amount of years of experience before you can take that cert too. So that's why I say engineering type. Um, careers that bachelor's degree is the foundation and then work your way up into getting your cert which you can get like a, a CASP um, I believe that's CompTIA if I'm not mistaken I could get that wrong correct um, and then IST squared has the CSSLP the CISSP uh, the C uh, I wrote some of these down because I couldn't remember all of them um, and the, the CISSP has the, the tags so once you get your CISSP, you can go into architecture, the architecture tag, you can get the engineering tag, you can, so there's there's all kinds of options to do that to further your career. And the, the longer you're in it, the more you know. Um, what would I say that you would do in the meantime? If you study something new, it doesn't even have to be daily, just once a week. If you go look up something new once a week and study it once a week, you can become a subject matter expert in no time. Because a lot of people don't put in that kind of work to learn. And, and for building confidence, for me, for building confidence, if I want to come to somebody with a recommendation and I want to come confidently, I study. I study everything that I can find. I spend, I mean, I've been doing this for 16 years and, and there hasn't been a week that, that goes by that I don't learn something new, that I don't go on my own and study. So... I would say that that's what built confidence for me. Now, if you are in an IT field and you want to do cyber and you're you're looking more into the enterprise and, and whatnot, definitely to get your foot in the door. Um, you don't always have to have a degree to get into IT. Um, you can get a cert, which is an A plus. Uh, or the network plus that that gets your foot right in the door into your entry level and if you're working on computers with your hands on as a sysadmin that is great work hands-on work and it's a good entry level field to get into um, if you're looking to go further into your network security your hardware security and things like that i would definitely say continue down the sec plus path um, 
Some people want to jump into the CISSP, but there's a reason why you need like five years of experience and, and you can get it earlier. You can get an associates without having the five years, but it's just, it's so comprehensive. It's broad and, and it goes over so many topics. So I always say, you know, probably a good path if you're in IT security that you want to do the CompTIA courses. Um, they're, they're great starts to, to help you along your career. And then as you go, if you want to further your career and you want to get a uh, school. So from a hiring manager perspective, when I'm looking for candidates, I look for kind of the trifecta. I'm, I'm looking for what are your hands on experience? Because I want to see, can you problem solve? You know, we work with customers that need people problem solving. So I want to know, do you have hands on experience where you can apply your knowledge and that you didn't just get a cert, a cert to go make more money? Like I went and got a cert. Right. <laughs> I don't have experience, but I know this will get me more money. And then you don't have hands on and you don't know how to take that certification because some some people can teach a really good cert course and, and show you how to pass the cert. Right. And you have to, for me, I have to weigh candidates for like the trifecta. I'm looking for, yeah, a cert is nice, but let me, tell me about your knowledge and your hands-on experience and let me understand how you would solve problems. And then I look at your certs. I'm like, oh, okay. So you have this one, that one, what it falls in line with. Right now I'm studying for the SISM and um, your last guest speaker that I watched on um, the podcast uh, Leash, Leisher, is that right? Jeremy Leisher. Leisher. You know, he, he made a comment about how he'd go to some of these uh, cert classes and, you know, he's taking these boot camps and stuff. And then when he gets in there at first, he feels really stupid. And he's like, I, he goes, I don't know if it's just me or if it's like the material. And, and I laugh because I'm, I'm, I'm studying for the SISM. <laughs> and although I do this, like my customer is a DOD customer and I, and I, and we speak in language like program management, program manager, and things like that. But the system teaches it from a universal uh, approach. And they use nomenclatures like, you know, it's it's system owner, information system manager, information. And, and you're like, I got I got it. I got to tie them together. And when I take the practice exams on the system, I feel stupid. I'm like, why did I get that wrong? Why, why? You know, and so I have to remember like, okay, how is my application at work? How does it correlate? And how can I remember that for the exam? Because I'm like, no, no, I, I would. And so when I read the answer, I'm like, oh yeah, that's yeah. But I didn't read the question that way. It's weird. So I understand completely what it's talking about. Like you, you read this stuff and you're like, I'm just not bright at all. <laughs> right. Karen, that's a good point you make because you need to uh, tell the difference between the subject and what they're actually talking about. And I could totally understand being, um, having worked in the government and then you're basically taking a commercial exam where they're using a uh, different nomenclature and you just have to tie the two together and, and think out of the out of your box. It's yes. not that you feel stupid. It's they're talking different. You know, mm -hmm. you're talking apples. They're talking oranges. So that's a very good point. <laughs> hey, one thing I did want to ask you was, what are some of the breakthroughs that you've seen in um, information uh, security engineering um, over? I don't know. Let's say the last ten years. So I, uh, what we're seeing now is the development of NIST. So the, the more mature that the NIST publications become because you have consortiums, you know, that are these are really, really smart people. 
that are coming together and they're they're making revisions to this NIST documentation and it gets more and more mature. So the more and more mature, the better our practices become. Um, I think technology is technology is probably outpacing us, right? It outpaces us from a point of what we're just trying, you know, you're almost like a ship that's sinking and, and you're trying to plug holes and, and you know, like, um, I don't know if your dad was like this, but my dad would sometimes put duct tape around stuff if it broke, right? You know, like it's a quick fix. And, and, and sometimes I feel like engineering and cyber is that way. We're just like, oh, just, you know, put a patch on that or, you know, or what's the latest, you know, mitigation that we can apply. And it's not, we're, we're not always because of money, because of cost. We're not always redesigning everything, right? So I think some of the smart breakthroughs that I'm seeing now is we're talking cyber resiliency now. We're, we're starting to talk, how does a system behave when under attack? And we are doing more testing in the test fields now than we used to do. So just put stuff out there and, you know, cross your fingers that something didn't happen almost, right? And it wasn't until about the last 10 years, I know from a DOD perspective, that they started saying when you're, so if you're, if you know anything about acquisitions and the way that projects move through an acquisition lifestyle in the government, or life cycle, not lifestyle, a life cycle, there's a milestone C and milestone C is like right before deployment and fielding, right, right? before milestone c so that means that you like during the materials phase you now have to have a cyber test on your product and that used to not happen um and which is great but now we've even started backing that up into requirements analysis we're starting to do cyber testing during requirements analysis now to say really did you get it right if you if you, your first go like, and before it gets to what they call CDR and PDR uh, at the milestones of the engineering V, and then the milestones that follow the acquisition process. So you kind of have two processes going there at the same time. You have an acquisition life cycle, and then you have an engineering life cycle. And so we're now getting engineering, you know, into the front end, which is great because it's less less expensive. We all know that in design, when you design something, it's always less expensive to put it in in the beginning than it is to try to you know, revamp it to get it in on the end, on the end, on the end state. Certainly we're still going to in the across the globe and we're already seeing it. We see it all the time. We are in cyber warfare, whether, whether people really understand that or not, we are currently at cyber war. It's happening to us all the time. Our enemies are constantly trying to, to hack us. And, and uh, what, your uh, the guest speaker Leisher, Jeremy Leisher, said it, and and I, I agreed with him whole, uh, wholeheartedly. He said, "Hey, our enemies are starting these kids out when they're young, training them how to hack. You know, they work for the state, right? They work for the state. We don't necessarily do that here. I mean, we're starting to do more STEM. We're starting to put STEM in classes in the universe at the at the high school and middle school levels, but we are kind of." falling behind the curve when it comes to cyber intelligence. I mean, if you, cause it was almost like we, we were for a long time, we were the front runners. We were the front runners of technology and you know, we, we are kind of proud and boastful. We had egos. And during this time, the, the last several years, we've seen more and more hacks where they are siphoning, siphoning information out of our data centers. This is proprietary information. 
Um, it wasn't until the last five years, I think, that the Department of Justice even knew how to prosecute something, right? Like, how do we prosecute cyber crimes? And, and what does that mean? And, and how does, I read an article where Google had shut down a counter intel group. So now that becomes an ethics question, right? That becomes something that we're seeing uh, and that is on the discussion boards now. Can a commercial entity start shutting down our counter intel? Because we, I don't know if people understand this, we need counter intel. <laughs> so we need to know what the enemy is doing. And how do we know that if we're not watching what's happening, right? Right. So um, I think that uh, for engineering, I think we've come a long way. I think people are starting to become more cyber aware. I think it took big hacks to do that. I think it took showing people to be vulnerable to do that. Uh, and it got people's attention. Um, I believe that now uh, military understands that cyber war is real. Uh, if they can take out your comms unit, they take away the availability to your weapon. So how do you protect yourself, right? If they can take out your satellite feeds, they can take out your the way for you to track to defend yourself. And um, we're seeing it on different levels. We see it uh, in different industries where um, a few years ago where President Obama was even having to, you know, look at the Sony, the Sony hack and where, um, you know, here's a commercial entity in the United States that's being hacked and information was taken off of it. Right. And it wasn't just Sony. It was other industries. And we had to at least put some sort of um, laws in place to help where we could prosecute that. So that there's different layers and different things that we, we need help on. Uh, I think that one of the biggest career fields in cyber is going to be cyber law. Like if you're if somebody's interested or a lawyer now and interested in cyber, I think that they could build a career, a huge career in cyber law in the United States. I, I agree with you on that one. Yeah, something that's lacking very much for sure. Absolutely. So let me let me uh, throw this question out to you. This is a different one. So how do you like to learn the best? Do you do it through books, uh, Internet? podcasts, blogs, what do you use? Um, so I, I do a variety of things. Um, I think, you know, for me, uh, I, I like the practice questions. I like doing quizzes and practice questions because then I can see where, okay, if I got that one wrong, why? And then I will go, I'm very inquisitive, so I'll go do a deep dive. You know, I'll Google stuff. Um, my morning, and this is such a nerd, my morning reading a lot of times is my alerts and what Google tells me like, oh, you know, you've, because I obviously I read a lot of cyber articles, so it'll tell me, you know, it'll have a list and when I log in, you know, I'll go to my Google page and it'll show me, uh, different things I might be interested in. Um, I'm not, for some reason, I don't know if this maybe have like adult ADD or something. I don't do well on videos. Like it, it I had to. I had to watch that last podcast in three different stops, like three sections, because I don't know. And I think that that's just me. I think that that I, I'm a reader. I, I learn via reading, and I think I process it a little bit better. Watching videos, my brain starts thinking as they're talking. I'm like, oh, and then I have to start taking notes. So that's another thing that I do is I take notes. Like I, I have, like I'm always like, this is my my notebook, and and like it's like got tabs and and that's, that's good though. Yeah, it, well, because, you know, so in my psychology classes, what I learned was uh, the human brain, it takes about an average of seven times for you to see something or hear it or be exposed to it to learn, right? And so that's even when I'm teaching the CISSP, like I tell students, like, 
we may we may do a lot of um, quizzes. We may do just talking. We may just bring up a subject and talk about it. We will definitely have the PowerPoint, but we don't want death by PowerPoint, and because those are just for studying later. And then you know you watch videos. I'll give them assignments. Take this, you know, listen to this podcast, read this article, that kind of thing. So I think that it's a culmination of, of a lot of different things. It just depends on how much time and attention, but certainly note taking and rewriting stuff. I do a lot of that so I can learn. Where's one place we'll find you online the most? Oh, this is shameless. Um, <laughs> probably Facebook. Busted, busted. <laughs> Um, between between LinkedIn and, and Facebook, uh, I've had to I've had to like you know fix my news feed and Facebook so that I can stay positive. Um, and I did like start logging out of it, so I'm not getting notifications. And I've started using LinkedIn a little bit more, where I can follow a lot of um, positive um, sources for references. So following NIST following uh, companies that I like, following the Harvard Business Review. I really love the Harvard Business Review. They have just great articles on about leadership, management in general. Um, and so I'm kind of at that point in my career where I'm learning more about being a manager, understanding people, recognizing things, personalities, re recognizing that kind of stuff to where I can be a better leader and mentor. Um, I don't like the word manager because I don't feel like I manage people. I feel like I, I like to mentor and teach people because I want to leave when I leave this career. I want to leave it with people who are excited and passionate as I am about solving problems. So, Karen Williams, this has been an excellent discussion. I want to personally thank you for being the first to be on the podcast in this very important series, uh, Women in Cyber. And um, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as always, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync.